Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guide Talk, which I always look forward to. And I have a full house today. The studio is loaded up with a power panel. We've got Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, and Tom Berkowitz. So we've got uh, quite a lineup today. So let me know what your questions are. The text line is open and waiting, 877-933-2484. Again, 877 877-933- Three three two four eight four, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Bill. Good to be here. Yeah, as always, Tom. Nice to be here. As Tom Berkowitz, nice to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, been a pleasure. All right, let's jump into uh, some questions. I've got a starter question right here. Matthew twenty one. It says uh, Jesus says this is Jesus talking. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Okay. Seems like that's an amazing uh, statement, but it can also be uh, quite perplexing for Christians because that may not be their experience. And how are we supposed to understand this verse? Thoughts? Doesn't it mean you can ask for anything? I want a new Ferrari. I want a new house. I want a new whatever. Well, no, that's probably not accurate, right? I think of a couple other passages where Jesus says, Lord, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. There's another verse in, uh, I think it's Luke 5, where uh, someone's asking Jesus to be healed, and it says, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. And so I think the key here, I mean, this is a, a difficult passage, but I think the key here is that if you ask... In Jesus' name, according to the Lord's will, it will be given. I have no doubt that if it's the Lord's will that a mountain gets up and gets thrown into the sea, and I I know that's the Lord's will, and that's how I pray, it would happen. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt whatsoever. But I think we have to be careful that we're praying in the center of God's will. I like that. And the reason I like that is that my travels overseas, like in Bangladesh, India, those places, those Christians never pray for a Ferrari. (laughs) <laughs> they don't pray for even a good, you know, crop of fruit per se. What they pray about is the advancement of the kingdom of God within their midst and among their Muslim people. So those people will come to Jesus. I think in America, we are so blessed. We have so much. I could get in a way and, and we keep wanting more. It's never enough. And so what we go to the Lord in prayer, uh, it's usually based on something like that rather than being based on what is the advancement of the kingdom. How do we bring the name of Jesus into this and how do we bring people to faith? So it's a struggle and it's hard. And, uh, you know, I have prayed over people and I watched them die. I prayed over people and I watched them healed. I wish I could mm-hmm. fully explain that. What I do know is that Jesus was there in all those circumstances and he will accomplish his will. You know, I look at it from a Hebraic perspective in the context of this verse was between the 10th of Nisan and the 14th of Nisan. It was the time when you took the Passover lamb and you examined it to see if there's any blemish. He made the triumphant 
entry into Jerusalem. So the scribes, the Pharisees, and everyone's looking at him. So they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he had cursed a tree, and the tree died. And he says, you can say to this mountain, be thrown in the sea. Well, if they're on the Mount of Olives and it's a clear night, you can see the Dead Sea. And so he's talking metaphorically, and he's saying, if you believe in your circumstance, it will be done. Probably alluding to what Elijah did when he called down uh, fire from heaven. It could be um, any situation you're in. If the God puts you in that situation, he'll be there for you, and by faith, he'll give you what you want. Can you imagine Elijah sending his servant on Mount Carmel, Carmel to go look out to the Mediterranean Sea, which is a long ways off, and there's no cloud, not once, not twice, but on the seventh time he looks and he sees just a little speck. He comes back, reports it to Isaiah, and he tells uh, Ahab, hey, get ready, the f- storm is coming. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of faith. You trust God. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, and be flexible. Yeah, but what happens when what you're praying for is you would believe is so clearly in God's will, like you're praying for a prodigal child to return, or you're praying for um, um, a, a sibling to come to faith in Christ, or something. You go, how would this not be God's will? I think a lot of times I want to tell the Lord what His will should be. How's that work out, Tom Perry? It doesn't work (laughs) very well at all. I didn't think so. But that's where I usually start. What I've had to learn over the years is that my will and Jesus' will, even though I'm thoroughly in the Word, are not always identical. Therefore, when I say to Jesus, I'm going to put faith in you that your will be done, I need to come to the realization that I have to trust Him for His timing, whether people live or die, whether I get what I understand in my lifetime— because he's the Lord, and he has the bigger picture. I don't. Mm-hmm. You know, it is God's will that none should perish, but all to come come to repentance. That that actually is God's will. That's in First Peter, and God tells us that. He doesn't want anybody uh, to be lost. Um, but we also have the dynamics of salvation, that it takes faith. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So it is God's will. When Tom, when you were talking about that they were praying for the advancement of the kingdom, well, that's God's will. We know the kingdom is going to advance. In fact, it's going to fill the whole earth when he comes. Um, the, the, the risk with this verse, I think, is taking it to the extreme in the sense that there are some in Christianity that says, if you have enough faith, you can pretty much get anything you want, health, wealth, prosperity, and so on. That's treating God like a vending machine, machine, and I just don't think it works that way. Mm-hmm. All right, let's jump to um, the verse in Matthew 21. Let's stay in that uh, chapter. And Jesus clears the temple courts of the money changers and those that are doing business. What would you say was the reason behind this? The reason behind, well, the the money changers in the temple courts, we got a Jewish man here, so we should (laughs) defer to him maybe, but they were not honest traders. They overcharged everybody. What they were doing was selling 
the sacrifices. So if you were coming to Jerusalem for the purposes of the Passover and you, you didn't want to carry your sacrifice with you, so you'd come, you exchange money and buy the sacrifice in Jerusalem to, to offer your sacrifice then unto the Lord. But there, there, it's kind of like buying a soda at the baseball game. You know, a soda should cost about a buck fifty, and it costs $9, right? That's <laughs> right. what they were doing yeah. at the temple. Right. I mean, you can't, uh, if you're coming from the Galilee, you're not going to bring chickens with you or drive cattle. So you go to the money changer and this is to serve God. That's what they're there for, the sacrifices. And they were, and they were uh, overcharging them. I think what we always have to be careful of in the church today is the church can become a business rather than the house of the Lord. Mm. Instead of a house of prayer and the word, we can turn it into something else pretty quickly. And I think they, they faced the same issues back then. And you're right. What you two have said is exactly right. They, they were overcharging people. They were, it was a business enterprise in that sense. Where in actuality... Being called to the Lord's house shouldn't be a business enterprise. It should be a heart enterprise. And too often, even in the church as pastors, we don't make it that. We have to provide that opportunity for people to come and open up their hearts to the Lord. And sometimes that means the service isn't going to be the way we planned it. Sometimes that means we're not going to make that big appeal for the money we need for the boiler because the Lord's doing other things. But when you're open to what the Lord's doing, I think then the church becomes what it's meant to be. I'll never forget, we were on vacation, and my son was in his room. He was about 10 years old, and he had flipped on the TV one morning, and there was some televangelist preacher basically saying, if you send in your $100, you're going to get this prayer cloth, and God will repay you a thousand times over, so basically expect $100,000 in return just for buying this prayer cloth from this guy on TV. And I walked into the room, and, and he was telling me what this guy was saying. He goes, that can't be true, can it? And I said, no, no, Jacob, very good. It's not true. Gentlemen, nice work. I've got the power panel here. Um, Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, and Tom Berkowitz, uh, Tom, you're a regular on my afternoon show, and I thought it would be awfully fun to have you uh, join Guy Talk uh, today and uh, just give our listeners again a little 90-second uh, uh, background of you. When I was uh, 17 years old, um, senior year of, my, of, of high school, my God died after an argument with him. That was my father. I got in an argument. Uh, he had a heart attack. I picked him off the floor, and he took his last breath in my arms, and I thought I killed him. And so I was very distraught. We had to wait until sundown because it was on a Saturday, so it was on uh, the Sabbath. And we went to the, we went to the uh, rabbi's chambers to talk to him and and I took what he said as being disrespectful to my father and my family because we're secular and now we wanted a religious ceremony. So I cursed him and the God he served and went storming out. Well, a number of years later, uh, after I was married to Marsha and she was a nice Lutheran girl that was having a revival in her heart and it drove me nuts because she's going to this large Bible study, <laughs> I decided I was going to lead her away. 
And so at the same time, my college roommate, my drinking buddy, became a born-again Christian, and he witnessed to me, and I said, I just can't take this. And over the years, marrying into my wife's family, family of Lutherans, they never hit me over the head with the gospel or anything else. They just lived it. And I watched their lives, and I thought, did these people fall out of the sky from Mars or something? Who are they? (laughs) Their love and and the way they did business and conducted itself. I didn't know at that time. It just made my heart loose. So Mm -hmm. when I opened up Matthew and it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus and Messiah, the son of uh, David, the son of Abraham, I realized this was a Jewish document, and I poured myself into it, and I read the Gospels literally 50 times, over and over. I didn't read anything else because if it wasn't true about Jesus, everything else was out. Mm -hmm. One day I wandered over to uh, Romans, and I read Romans 5a, but God demonstrates his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. I'm the firstborn son of a Jewish man. I was expected to perform, and I love was based on my performance, and I never performed up to expectation, partially because they kept moving the goal. So when I got there, after kind of falling in love with Jesus, not knowing what to do with it, I read that verse this. God demonstrates his love for you in this way, Tom, while you still not performing up to expectation, Messiah died for you, crushed me. Mm. And I asked him to come into my heart, and from that time, I couldn't get enough of his word. Yeah, I've got one more question for you when we come back from the break. But you are listening to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, and they are ready to take your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Eight four. If there's a Messianic Jew listening, I would love to hear from you with one of your questions. We've got Tom here in studio. We've got Tom Parrish, Tom Berkowitz, although he spells his name T-H-O-M, so you can tell the difference, and Jeff Ferdorn. We'll be right back. to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, we're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. We're back, and it is time for Guide Talk, and we're ready for your questions. So if you've got a question that's you've been wanting to ask for a while, send it over. The text line is open, 877-933-2484, and my power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Tom Berkowitz. So, Tom, thank you for sharing part of your story. I did want to ask you one more piece of your story, because your experience with your brother is really strong, and I would love for you to just share that as well with the listeners. 
actually it was brothers. They were twins, um, 19 months younger. So when I became a believer, I went out and bought them a Bible, just like I did. And, <laughs> and I, brought, I decided I'll go to the easier one first. So I brought it to my brother, Bill. And I said, Bill, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. It's all in this book. I'd like to give you this. And he got so angry, I had to wipe the spit off my face. And I said, wow, that was hard. So then I went to Bob, his twin. I said, the same thing, Bob, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. It's all in this book. And he slammed his fist on the table. I hate Christians, Tommy. I hate them. Don't ever bring this up to me again. Well, 10 years later, Bill calls me up and he said, Tom, you know that Bible you were going to give me? Do you still have it? I want it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's have lunch. So I bring it over to him and he said the most humbling thing anyone's ever said to me. I said, Bill, you got to give me a clue. After 10 years, why now? And he said, Tom, I've been watching you for the last 10 years. You're not the same brother I grew up with. And I want what you have. And he took the Bible and he read it. And within a couple weeks, I prayed with him to receive Jesus as his Messiah. And he did. He told his wife about it. And she said, how could you do anything so incredibly stupid? And ended up divorcing him. Oh, wow. And so I said, how do you feel about it, Bill? And he said, it doesn't, I'm hurting but it doesn't change the truth. Wow. And I'll stay with the truth. And then six years later, his twin came to the Lord. And the beauty of that one is when I walked in his house, he said, Tommy, I want to tell you something. Jesus is Jewish. I said, well, thanks, Bob. I didn't know that all these years. <laughs> Make a long story short. Bob also became a believer For the first time in 30-some years, we celebrated Passover together. And the next year, as Passover was coming, so it was right about the time we're talking in Matthew 21, Bob died of a heart attack. Mm. And I remember looking up to God, and I said, you are truly a God that hears and answers prayers. Amen. And he's in the kingdom with you today because of your faithfulness. Wow. You know, your testimony is for everybody to hear. And the reason I say that is all of us have family members who we've witnessed to or talked to and nothing has happened. We've had lots of issues like that. But I think of the words of uh, Winston Churchill in World War II, never give up, never give in, never let go. And that's exactly what the Lord used you to do in giving the Bibles and walking in faith. And look what happened to your brothers. And that, I believe, can happen to more families if we consistently walk with the Lord. Thank you. I have another relative I've been praying for for 43 years. And just about a month ago, two months ago, um, she called me up and and she said, I'm invited to this banquet. I think it's chosen people. Are you going to be there? And I said, well, yeah, I helped organize it. (laughs) (laughs) I said, tell me about this. Well, another Messianic Jew had shared the scriptures with her, gave her a Bible, and she's underlined. She doesn't understand the thing that she's reading, but she's doing it. And she said, I want to come and hear this. And my husband doesn't want to. He says, I don't want to be converted. And she said, 
fine, don't go. They both came and they were both blessed, and they're on their journey. I love yeah. it. Love it, too. 43 years of praying. Wow. Yeah. Great story. Wonderful. Never Wonderful give up. Story. Never yeah. give in. Never give up. And please send over questions, 877-933-2484. All right, here's a question, gentlemen. Would it be accurate to say it is easier to go to heaven than hell since in order to not be saved, one has to actively reject Christ? I don't know if I actively under- reject Christ. Well, well, you have to you have uh, yeah. to actively accept Christ. Yeah. too. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about a function of the will. You you have to decide. Look, the pattern of Scripture over and over is you you hear the word, the gospel of your salvation. Having heard it, you need to believe it, and once you believe it, God saves you. Uh, there's a passage in Hebrews four, I believe, that says the message that they heard was useless to them because they did not combine it with faith. So you have to actively believe that's an act of faith. I stand at the door and knock whosoever opens the door. That is an excuse me, that's an act of faith to to accept Jesus into your life, to make him your Lord and your Savior. So rejecting him is also an act. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. First Thessalonians five says. So um so yeah, both are an act of the will. 50 years ago, when well, not 50, 40 some years ago, when I really had a conversation with Jesus, we all know he had a conversation with me. He came looking for me. Bottom line was, and I, I knew at the moment what I was being asked. Now, to slide into life and to do what I wanted to do. And as you guys know, I was going to go to Hollywood. I was going to make motion pictures, going to work with the guy. I think his name's Steven Spielberg, people like that. I was going to do that. And I was going to be in charge. And what Jesus was basically saying is, hey, you surrender to me. I'll be in charge, Tom, and I'll tell you what to do. And for me, that was the biggest step I ever took. So for me, that was a big obstacle. But by God's grace and mercy, I said yes. But to slide along the path of where I was going, that would have been real easy, and I would have gone right to hell. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah. I mean, either believe or you don't believe. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember we were at a function and they were sharing the gospel, and this Jewish guy got up, and he started refuting everything they said. So I couldn't help myself. I didn't want to be there, so I was pouting in the corner and not saying anything. But I finally said, you know, I, I got to engage because nobody's ask, really hitting him to make a choice. So I asked him, I said, do you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And he looked at me and he said, absolutely not. I said, that's interesting. What makes you a Jew then? (laughs) (laughs) And there was dead silence. And then he said, well, I'm a Jew because my mother was a Jew, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and so on and so on Mm -hmm. down the line. I said, you just made the case for God. 4,000 years ago, our father Abraham received a, a promise from God and he believed it. Yeah. And God said there would always be a Jewish people. And the fact that you're here, knowing that you're a Jew, through the Romans, through the Spanish Inquisitions, through the uh, Crusades, and through the Holocaust, says that we serve a faithful God, and you should put your faith in him because he's real. All right. We'll take a little break. We come back. Time for your questions. Text them over, please, to 877 933 
84, I'll give it again nice and slow, 877-933-2484. Be right back with lots more Guy Talk. We are back with Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, in a full studio today. The power panel is Pastor Tom Parrish, Tom Berkowitz, and Jeff Verdorn. So let me know what your questions are. We're more than eager to answer whatever you send over, 877-933-2484. So, gentlemen, here's a question. How do you recognize false prophets? There seems to be many people calling themselves prophets, and their messages produce fear. Is there somewhere to go in the Bible to help in discerning and following others that are in line with the Bible message? Who do you trust to listen to? Well, I think we could start at 1 John 4. It says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. And he goes on to say that uh, you have to believe that, that Jesus came in the flesh and is from God. And that was kind of the test. Uh, Matthew 7 says, watch out for false prophets. Um, they, they, they don't believe that Jesus was, uh, you know, the whole narrative of Jesus's life, that he was born of a virgin. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a sinless life. He toned for the sins of the world, was buried and rose again. I mean, that's the narrative of the Bible. If, if you're contrary to that, uh, chances are you just might be a false prophet, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so much of this that goes on. The problem with with a lot of the prophecy, and I was, I go back far enough to remember in the '60s and '70s when a lot of the books came out and Late Great Planet Earth and all the other stuff. And I'm not saying that they weren't all right, but they, I mean, they they had some things to say, but they weren't accurate either. Here's the problem: Scripture says if Somebody comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord. If it doesn't come true, they got a problem. It will come true if it's from me. That's one thing. The other thing is— That was the test in Deuteronomy, right? Yep. If it doesn't come true exactly as they say. Yep. The second thing is we have a tendency to get caught up in what we call the ideophora or the extra things. <gasps> What's going to happen to the moon? <gasps> What's going to happen here? <gasps> What's going to happen there? Instead of the message should ultimately be about Jesus— and what he's going to do, and that he's going to return, and he's going to have the final word. And when we, not that we can't look at the other things, but when we, that becomes the real focus, we've missed the point. Right. For me, it depends on who the person is. Some mm. of them are well-intentioned, and of they're course. thinking they get a word from God, and some of them are deceitful. Paul says, and, and this is the most dangerous type of, of deceit for me. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 
So we're called to discern, and we're not called to argument, no. argue, but we are called to be have a spirit like the Bereans. Search your scriptures. God's given us this word, and in this country, it's you. We have so many different resources. Read and study for yourself. Pray. See what their what their purpose is. Usually, it's money. Hmm. You know, if I get a good word, then I need to keep going. You know, let's give to this person. But sometimes they're just foolish, and they yeah. don't know. Your description is spot on. I mean, in that, that passage I mentioned in Matthew 7, it says, of these false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They don't have your best interest in mind. They try to draw disciples away after themselves. I think as Paul says in Acts 20, he says, I fear that after I leave, savage wolves will slip in amongst you and teach you things that not ought to be taught. And the the only the way you protect yourself from the false is to know the truth. Yep. Nicely done. All right. Here's a question. How should we understand Deuteronomy 6.25? I know obeying the law does not make us righteous, but that's what it seems to say. I'm looking at you, Tom Berkowitz. Well, Paul said, according to the law, he was righteous. So there, you're keeping the law, you're keeping the spirit, and you're giving yourself to God. Yeah, that's righteous. But I think what your person asking the question is, how do we get righteous forever? And there's only one way, is being covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen. That's true righteousness. But you can be righteous in other ways, but not righteous unto salvation. Yeah, the, the New Testament is clear that righteousness did not come through observing the law. The Jews in Deuteronomy that were being spoken to were required to follow the law. That was their their obligation, God gave them the law and the Jews were to follow the law. But we now know with the rest of the New Testament uh, revelation that the law made nothing righteous. As you said, Tom, only faith in Jesus Christ will make you righteous. And Paul clearly says in the New Testament over and over again that he was released from the law. He was set free from the law. I myself am not under the law. I died to the law that I might live for Christ. The law is not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Um, so he's he says he's no longer under the supervision of the law. So the Mosaic Covenant, the the under the system of law is done. We're now under the system of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a fullness of right righteousness. Uh, to answer the, directly that question, mm-hmm. if you look at Deuteronomy twenty four thirteen, it says, "You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets." So this is some somebody who's borrowed money from a, uh, somebody who has wealthy, and now uh, Moses is talking to that wealthy person, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. It shall be righteousness for you before the Lord. So what he's saying there, the guy lent the poor guy uh, the money and took his coat as security, but at night he gives it back to him so he doesn't get cold. And what he's saying, now you have a right heart towards me. Mm-hmm. It's not talking about salvation, but that is righteous. And that's a lot of what is in the Old Testament as it was pointing f- forward to what Jesus is going to do. So you got to understand what the, the word righteous means and what's the context. 
It's interesting. Uh, my freshman year in college, the, the Lord taught me a good lesson. I was taking a literature class, and I was busy with lots of stuff. I mean, aren't all freshmen busy with stuff when they're in college? So I was on the go, and all of a sudden I realized I had a paper due on a book I was supposed to have read. Well, I only read the first chapter, and I wrote a great paper on the first chapter. And when I got the paper back, the professor had written on it, great review of the first chapter, Tom, but you need to read the rest of the book. And, yeah, that's probably true. When it comes to Scripture, we need to realize we have an unfolding revelation and that what Deuteronomy says is true, but we also have to see what Jesus does with it and how he unfolds it in the New Testament and what the New Covenant is about. Otherwise, we get stuck on, have I done enough? Am I good enough? And Jesus balances all of that out, and that's why, for me, the road to Emmaus is one of the most important passages where it says, for the two men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus then went through the scriptures and pointed out how they were all pointing to him. Nicely done. Nicely done. All right. Um, I have dear people who are relativistic, who believe each person has truth within them, and I have no right to say that Jesus is the only truth. So what is a concise way to share the gospel? (laughs) Great question. I love it. Well, I think whatever group of people you are dealing with, you share the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Um, Paul tells us in, I believe it's Thessalonians, that when we preach the gospel, it comes along with power and deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. So when we preach the gospel, we're not doing it alone. God is right there next to us, with us, with power and deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. But I mean, it is tough when, when you know, if everything is relative, then there is no truth. So Paul was an expert at knowing his audience and knocking down the barriers that they have. And I think one of the best ways to deal with a relativistic, a postmodern kind of relativism kind of worldview is start talking about, well, what do you believe is absolutely true? Because they believe a whole bunch of stuff is absolutely true, whether they recognize it or not. So get them to rec- recognize that they, too, actually do believe in certain absolute truths. It's always good to challenge people in an appropriate way. You can do it without being mean, but you can challenge people. And I, I've been very blessed in my ministry of leading a lot of people to the Lord, especially agnostics and atheists who love this kind of terminology. Well, my truth is my truth and your truth is your right. truth. And basically what I say to them is, so you have come to that conclusion after thoroughly looking at the evidence. And they go, well, yeah, I've read the Bible. I said, well, that's great. Well, tell me about the seven claims of Jesus and John and why those are so important and why they've affected so many people. And usually they sit there with a blank face, and that's why I'm what to say. It's easy to come back then and say, you're making a statement about truth, and you're not looking at all the information. Why don't you look at the information first? And if I can get them to read the Gospel of John, which I've done many times, they read the Gospel of John, I've been astounded how many of them have come to faith in Jesus. Mm. But we make these statements, and it's usually a statement of uh, kind of like when I was in junior high and I walk across the gym floor and ask the girl to dance, and she said, not now, Tommy. <laughs> you know, I could get the pushback. I think it's the same way here. People want to push back because they really don't know how to deal with it, so they like these relativistic terms. My truth is my truth. doesn't work that way. Someone says to you, there's no absolute truth come back to them and say, are you absolutely sure about that, right? You've just made an absolute statement. Right. Well, even when you're saying that each person has their truth within them, I mean, that's 
that's a theological conviction. That's a theolo- That's a strong theological statement you're making. That's not without um, a perspective. It's like I, I've got a truth and you've got a truth. So those are two very distinct perspectives. Well, when I found out I had cancer several years ago, and I went to my surgeon, and and I said to him, basically, my truth says I'm okay. You know, how do you feel about that? He said, well, that's great. I'll come to your funeral. <laughs> so so there, there's truth that exists outside of us. There is truth that may be within us. But we can't let what we think is the truth alone not be challenged and debated and looked at by a lot of others. And that's why I love group Bible studies. I'm, I'm very much for studying the scriptures. I do that all the time because I preach. But I love to be with you guys. I love to be with others to challenge my thinking and to give me other perspectives because it's in the the fellowship that I think the truth really gets emer- really emerges for Christians. We need to test and push back. Let's take a look at your truth and how that, how has it worked out and how has it played out over the years. And let's look at the truth of God and how consistent he is. In Hebrew, there's a word, and I use this a lot, it's the akarit, it means the end of a matter or that which lies behind. It would be like uh, Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end, its akarit, is a way of death. So this seems right to you, but let's look at the rest of the story. You got to use Paul Harvey and see what it it says. <laughs> Another one is Proverbs twenty three thirty one. Do not look at wine when it's red. When it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly, in the end, in the ocarite, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adler. I mean, so you got to look at the truth. Mm, I mean, to sit there and say, my truth is right and yours is wrong, you know, thank you, I'll see you later. But if you can reason with a person and talk with them Mm -hmm. and examine the outcome, what is the ocarite of that? Yeah. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're... Ready for your question, 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guide Talk. Thank you for sending in great questions. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter... Thank you so much becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Right before we went to break, a question was raised that's a good way to share the gospel. Just from a personal standpoint, you guys mind each taking just a little bit of time to say, my approach is, and then sort of fill in that blank. My approach is to listen 90% of the time to what the other person's saying. I found that when I'm really actively listening to that person and I'm praying under my breath that the Holy Spirit will open a door, it is astounding how people start telling me about their spiritual needs or about their personal needs. And then we can start taking steps from there and I have a very basic presentation of the gospel, which most people can do. You know, it's similar to the Roman road. But it's I want to make it as personal as I can based upon what they're saying. So that's what I try to do. And um, it has been wonderful to see what the Lord does with that. 
Well, for me, it's like Tom said, I listen. See what they're really asking and mm-hmm. try to ferret that out. And to me, one of my favorite verse, verses in the Bible is in Revelation twelve eleven. It's by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that we'll overcome. That's how we penetrate people's hearts. So I listen to where they are and then try to match up and walk alongside them and use the word of God and the word of our testimony. Mm-hmm. I think in any everyday conversation with, with neighbors, with friends, with coworkers, and so on, there there is an opportunity. There is an off-ramp at some point in time in that conversation to turn it to matters of faith. And, uh, I, you know, there's lots of people that have different evangelizing techniques. I don't think there's one best technique. I think as you are led by the Spirit, I, I would often meet with people, and my prayer going in is like, Lord, you know where they are at. You know what I know. Use me. Mm, and if like you that. say that, you, the Lord's going to use you no matter where they're at, what their objections are, where, what they happen to believe is true. You will find a, an on-ramp to discuss matters of faith. Mm-hmm. I like that. I will often ask, uh, did you learn about God growing up? Most people are willing to go back to their earlier days and they're quick to say, yes, I did learn about God, which can lead to, what did you learn? <laughs> and you can find out if they were learning good biblical principles or if they've got a God of their imagination in their head. I often, uh, waitress, waiters and stuff, and if depending on the s- situation, but I'll often start with creation. If they say, no, they don't believe in God with a question like that, mm-hmm. uh, maybe preceding that, um, you start to just ask him, well, where do you think all this came from? Where do you think you came from? You know, kind of this question of origins. And then you need to ask them a question of destinations. Well, what do you think is going to happen when you die? It amazes me how few people who don't know the Lord ever really consider that question, what happens when you die? Have you ever thought about that? No, not really. Never? Stunning. You know that it's pretty much 100% guaranteed that everybody that's walked the face of the earth is going to die. And you've never thought about it. Wow. Hmm. Most of the young waiters and waitresses, when we go out, and we don't go out that often, but when we do, have tattoos. And so I start with the tattoos, because obviously <laughs> they're proud of their tattoos. And I'll say, why'd you get that tattoo? What is that tattoo supposed to mean? And inevitably, if you listen long enough, and I had one waitress come back 11 times to service, you know, and there 45 minutes because she wanted to continue talking. And basically, it's an identity issue for many people. They're trying to gain an outward identity that they may not feel on the inside. And I'll ask them, how's that How's that working for you? How do you are you getting a better sense of who you are and why you've been created? Mm. And many of them have said to me, right to my face, well, no, but, but, but it seemed good at the time. And then I say, well, if you ever want to know, I can tell you how I got my identity and I'm ready to die with it. Mm. And I stop. And I have had them literally put down their pad or whatever and say, I've got time now. <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, and we do. All right. Here's a question. Will we be uh, dwelt by the Holy Spirit in heaven? Will we be indwelt by the Holy Spirit in heaven? You know, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus says, I pray that we will be one just as they are one. There is this idea that we will be one with God for all of eternity. Um, so we're one now. We're united with him in spirit. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are one, just as Jesus prayed in, in, in John, post, post-cross, 
He says, I'm going to go away, and if I go away, the Holy Spirit come, and he will dwell in you. For how long does it stay in, say in Scripture again? He will be with you, oh yeah, forever. So yes, I think we can know that we will have the indwelling presence of God within us for all of eternity. Well, if the Spirit is in there keeping my heart online with with the Lord and not and my attitude's in that, then it's not paradise. Paradise is when I align with Jesus in my thinking, and I want to be with him. And I need the Holy Spirit to do that. Now, I'm going to need that for all eternity, too. Mm. And he's going to be there. Mm. Yeah. All right. Why does God uh, not answer some believers' prayers? I think we kind of started with that. But another question is circled back. Why God didn't answer some believers' prayers? What's the prayer? That's a great question. (laughs) And God has information about our lives that we don't have. So what are we asking, and is it according to his will? Yeah, I, you know, obviously the why questions to me biblically are the hardest questions of all. Why does God do this? Why doesn't God do that? Why does, you know, I know this. This is what I know for sure, that all things are working for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that for sure. I know this for sure. That in the end, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If he's working all things and his will will be done, you know, it depends what the prayer is, but I know whether the answer is yes or no or wait or, you know, whatever your answer, it's according to his will and his will will be done. Here's what I know. That God listens to us. Mm-hmm. He hears our prayer. David, God picked the greatest general in the history of Israel to write some of his greatest psalms, and it's King David. So David knew that. He said, I waited patiently for you. You inclined to me and heard my cry. You brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon the rock making my footsteps firm. So, David, you have to wait patiently. Psalm 27, another one, 14. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So we wait on him. And this is not something that Jesus himself didn't do. And he cried out. And sometimes the prayer we ask isn't going to be the one that gets answered. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And Hebrews says a, uh, has a funny verse that a lot of people choke on. And even the Son of God learned obedience in the things which he suffered. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we go through these things, so we bring us closer to to Jesus or to God, and even and that nevertheless, we have to learn to walk in that nevertheless. I cried out to God for the last couple of years for something, and I still haven't seen it. But I've seen God answer other prayers for me. But it's still nevertheless not my will, but Your will be done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have to suffer for someone else's sake. Yeah. the The addendum to this question was about sickness. So this seems like a heartbreaking prayer request, praying for an answer to a prayer for sickness, regarding sickness, and it's not getting answered. 
And that's heartbreaking. It is. It's very hard. And I hate to say it, even on this side, well, on this side of eternity, I don't care how firm a believer you are, there are going to be moments you're going to pray and you're going to watch people die. And I've had a lot of people die in my arms and I've had people Mm -hmm. healed literally when I was there. I can't explain it except, like you were saying, Tom, nevertheless, Lord, do what you're going to do. And that's where I've had to come to at this point in my life, and that's what I cling to more than anything else. Tom, a personal story. This past February, my knee I had replaced in in uh, 2009, the peg from my tibia to my kneecap that holds in, broke. I was standing there, and I heard it pop. It oh. broke. So there's no fixing it. So I had people lay hands on me, anoint me with oil, I badgered God like he's never been badgered before. And, you know, none of those prayers were answered. I did not want that surgery. I did not want to go through another one. And you know something? I had the surgery. It didn't happen when I wanted. They made me wait another month, and I prayed for the earlier date. It didn't happen. I went in, had the surgery. I'm seven months out, you know. I'm happy I had the surgery. My knee has never been better. I have never had mm. this much flexibility. And the way I got it, the doctor said, you're only going to get this back if you work hard. So I would work hard in a pain. I wanted to quit, but I just kept crying out to God to help me persevere through the pain. You know something? He did, and I learned something. Yeah. yeah. Not to mention you've done 100 deep knee bends since you've been here, so that's impressive. <laughs> I find that interesting. All right, we're going to take a break, but we're going to have more time with the, the power panel because we're going to do another 30 minutes, another extended guy talk, so keep your questions coming. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Eight four. The power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Tom Berkowitz. We'll be right back with more Guy Talk. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.